Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another opportunity, another day with your grace in our lives and the unique opportunity to gather together like this as your family and learn your word in unity. Father, most of all, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to become flesh, all for our benefit and for our salvation. Help us to comprehend these things that you've done, even though we're not able to fully understand it. Father, we ask that you bless this message, have your spirit guide the speaker, and help us hear with open hearts to hear what you have for us today. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, the Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 81. We saw on Sunday a follow-up to Thursday's lesson about theology and how to recognize it in the Scriptures as opposed to life situations and how people apply Scripture to their lives. As we discussed how experiences, whether our own or of those people in the Bible, they cannot shape our theology. It has to be the other way around. So I think we have to be careful, is what the Spirit is saying, as we read our Bibles So basically we're talking about determining truth. Whatever theology is clearly stated in the scriptures is the truth about a matter. And experiences can only complement or be interpreted by the correct theology. Again, whatever theology is clearly stated in the scriptures is the truth about that matter. And experiences can only complement or be interpreted by the correct theology. Uh, It's very easy to uh, become emotional about something, especially if we've experienced something in our lives. Um, And it's very easy to put a spin on the directly stated theology we see in the scriptures. Uh, Because something is inbred in our soul from experience, let's say. And we have to be on guard, uh, especially even for emotion, which can, um, you know, coerce us into what we believe. So we might ask, What comes first? Is it theology or experience? And this is not a chicken and egg thing, you know, where there's a mystery involved, even though for us there's no mystery because we know God created the chicken, right, and all the animals. But it's not that kind of a question. What comes first, theology or experience? Theology has to come first. Experience must take a back seat to directly stated truth in the Bible, just like the cart cannot come before the horse. Experience cannot come before theology. So it's important, especially when reading our own Bibles. And on Sunday, pastor shared with us this golden rule for interpretation from David L. Cooper. It says, when the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. And I like how he says, you know, seek no other sense, because there are other senses we can go to, you know, maybe even involving our emotion or our experience 
to interpret a scripture. But when it's plainly stated and, it, and the, the meaning is evident, don't try to scramble it up and don't try to add to it. The flesh tries to refute or at least add to plainly stated truths in the Bible. And it's funny the wording Mr. Cooper used here because for the last month what's been on my mind is how certain things are so plainly stated in the scriptures. That, that's kind of been recurring in my own soul. You know, plainly stated this, plainly stated that, especially about the fruit that will show up in the lives of believers, how some passages are just very plainly stated. For example, if you read 1 John chapters 3 and 4, we see that the one that loves is of God, and the one that doesn't love God doesn't know God. So that's a plainly stated theme all throughout 1 John 3 and 4. And those plainly stated types of themes are meant to be received with the faith of a child. Again, the Bible's not meant to be a complicated message. I always think back to who did Jesus come for? The lame, the weak. He didn't come for the scholars. He came for the uneducated. So if that's true, it must be meant to be interpreted in a direct way, let's say. Not a complicated way. And the faith of a child, again, a child doesn't have the intellect to try to add to Scripture. He just receives what he's told. We also saw last week in Malachi chapter 3, it says, The one who fears God and serves him is righteous, and the one that doesn't serve God is wicked. So these are things plainly stated. In other words, here are the characteristics of a believer. Here are the characteristics of an unbeliever. And it does go back and forth in a lot of passages that we see, directly uh, comparing the two. So with that said, uh, let's revisit the powerful passage we read in John chapter 1 as an example of theology in the Scriptures. Go to John 1.1. 1, 1. <clears throat> the emphasis on Sunday was that this is one of those passages that is just clearly stated theology, clearly stated direct truth about a certain subject. There's no experience interjected in this passage. There's no parables to, you know, have interpretation problems with. It is directly stated. And that's how you kind of recognize the theological statements. So John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when it comes to studying the Word of God, this might be one of the most critical statements of theology in the whole Bible, especially because most cults today deny the deity of Christ. That's the main thing that cults have in common, is they deny the deity of Christ. They don't give him credit for who he really is. So we see in John 1.14, the Word became flesh. On the board... The very expression of God's thoughts became manifest in a human being. The profundity, and by the way, that means to speak of something as profound, all right, or deep. I had to look that one up myself. The profundity of this cannot be overstated. It is so profound, in other words, that we can't overstate what we're reading here. For how does one fully comprehend the supernatural becoming natural? That doesn't even make sense. If it's supernatural, it can't be natural. But it happened. How does one comprehend the God of the universe humbling himself? Or the love. How do you comprehend the love that motivated the cross and planned the cross? We can't. So without hesitation, we as readers of the Bible must accept this plain statement about God and his word. The Word became flesh. Does it make total sense to us? No, because we cannot fully comprehend the things of God, not in this life. But we know that this is clearly and plainly stated to mankind, so we must accept it by faith. So we have, in a sense, a spiritual oxymoron. pastor mentioned this on Sunday. There are things that we simply cannot comprehend, though these things are fundamental to our faith. Just think about that statement. There are things that we simply can't comprehend. The Trinity, the cross, the Word becoming flesh. But these things are vital and fundamental to our faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 came up again where it says, Faith is the substance of things not seen or not understood. So here we have things we can't comprehend that are vital to believe if we're going to live in the faith. And when Hebrews 11.1 says things not seen, it's not just talking about seeing things with your physical eyes. It's talking about spiritual insight and understanding. So we don't have to understand everything to believe what the Word says. And what is that? That requires the faith of a child. We don't have to understand everything to believe what the Word says. You don't have to understand everything your father says or your father wants you to do to know that you need to obey him and trust him because he's smarter than you, right? So just like a little child doesn't have to understand everything his father says, so we can be that way with our God who has all knowledge. So the reality is 
the theology in John chapter 1, while it is absolutely true in every way, it cannot be grasped by our finite minds. Do you have a problem with this? Ask yourself. Do you have a problem that you cannot grasp what we just read in your finite mind fully? So you got to ask yourself, honestly, you got a problem? Do you have a problem in your soul? Since God is infinite, his theology is also infinite. And the flesh hates this. So if you have any kind of cringing in your soul when you hear that you cannot fully comprehend truth in the word, that means your flesh is getting involved. Your opinion is getting involved. Your rationalization is getting involved. Your flesh wants to be able to say it can control and know the infinite. So arrogance sprouts, not wanting to not know. That's the flesh, not wanting to not know. It wants to be in control or it feels insecure. So it kicks against the infinite and it kicks against accepting things by faith, even though you don't fully understand something. So by faith, submitting to God in our new nature, we can grasp a portion of truth, accepting what is plainly stated in the scriptures. That's what God loves. And it's up to God how much he reveals to us and the timing of that in our souls. He may not reveal everything to you right now because you can't handle it or you're too arrogant or whatever. He might reveal some truth in a passage and next year, next year you read the same exact passage and you get more truth out of it. Because that's up to the Holy Spirit, honestly, and what he lets you see. So what's the thing that determines that? Humility, right? He can't let you see as much as he wants to let you see when you're getting in the way and being arrogant. And that's what the flesh tries to do. It tries to interject itself into interpretation of theology. So Pastor talked about on Sunday why the flesh hates theology. The existence of theology is antagonistic to the flesh, not just because of its content, but also because of its infinite structure, because you can't put a cap on it. You can't say you know everything about any topic in the Bible, really. The flesh desires to control its surroundings, facilitating dominance over it. However, the word, just like God, is unbounded and infinite. And that precludes the flesh from achieving its end goal. So what the Spirit's saying here is that as we read our own Bibles, this has been the main reason for this whole conversation, as we read our own Bibles, our flesh is going to try to get in the way. And our flesh is going to try to hijack our perception of clearly stated theology in the Scriptures. Don't let it do it. Like anything biblical, Reading your own Bible must be done in the right way. And I think that's why the Spirit has us on this topic for the last couple messages. And that includes humility. Even before reading, asking God to open your eyes, asking God to take you out of the way and to, to take your flesh out of the way so that you are in the moment, so to speak. You're humble and filled with the Spirit. And asking God to open our eyes spiritually speaking, before we read. And that's, that's that step of humility 
that we need to take. I mean, how often do we, I know I do it, how often do we do something spiritual, whether it's reading the Word or, or we're going to do something for God or operate in our spiritual gift, and we don't pray first. We, quote-unquote, forget to pray. We rush into it, you know, for whatever reason. Preoccupied, maybe we even got fleshly thoughts going on, which is why we should pray. You know, we're preoccupied with something or we're aggravated with God about something. So we don't pray and humble ourselves first. Just something to think about. So the Spirit will open our eyes if we're humble, as we know. And reading our Bible must be done in the right way. Pastor also shared his personal thoughts as a shepherd this past week about us reading our own Bibles. And this is a quote from him. My great comfort is in knowing that the Holy Spirit, assuming you keep on reading, will ultimately iron things out in your souls. You must remain humble and resist the flesh's temptation to pervert theology when you see it. We must have faith in this statement, which basically is the fact that God will complete the good work in us. Right? Do we believe that God's going to complete the good work in us? It comes back to faith and humility, which is what gives us freedom. Have fun reading your Bible. If you're not having fun reading your Bible or you're not going into it with a positive uh, expectation, then something's wrong in the way you're looking at it. Right? Perspective, right? It's all how you look at it. And we can pray for humility and faith and change our perspective right away. So have fun reading your Bible. There's no rush. Isn't that great? It's not like you're in a college classroom and and the professor says, you've got to read three chapters tonight and I'm going to quiz you tomorrow. That's when it's a burden. That's when it's it's a work and it's a labor. Where God's like, listen, there's no timetable. I just want you to enjoy it every day and see what I show you and be humble and see where I take you. So there's no rush. So go into each day wondering what God is going to show you today. Have fun reading your Bible. Pastor mentioned on Sunday, don't make it a works program. What's a works program? Well, this is what I should be doing, so I'm going to do it. Is that the heart God wants to see? Is that a grace mentality of receiving grace, or is that a works program? This is what I should do, so I'm going to do it. Now, listen, we all start there, don't we? Let's admit it. We all start there. We all get stuck in that wrong way, that wrong perspective. But faith and humility and prayer can be like, Lord, change my mind. Why am I looking at it this way? Look at it the opposite way. It's a push method, as we talked about in the past, to think, oh, you know what? This is what I should do, so i got to do it. That's the push method. Let God pull you into his truth. And in humility, he will. If you're humble, he will. Be open and even excited about his guidance. Think about this, okay? It's better to read one chapter with eager anticipation than it is to read three chapters as part of your duty. Where's your mindset on that? It's better to read one chapter with eager anticipation for what he's going to show you and not rush through it than to read three chapters as part of your, you know, regiment. 
It's a joy to know, isn't it? Think about it. It's a joy to know that the Holy Spirit says he will open our eyes while we read our Bibles. He says he will teach us if we're humble. So right there is our our joy, our eager anticipation. Um, And that enables us to have fun reading our Bibles. So let's look at a friendly reminder about the Spirit's commitment to teaching us. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 2.10. There are several scriptures that talk about, you know, the Spirit being our true teacher. And uh, this is one of my favorites, um, just the way it's worded here. 1 Corinthians 2.10. For to us... God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we, as believers, have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Notice Paul says, not only in verse 12 is the Spirit going to teach us the things of God, but in verse 13, Paul says, we speak of these things, men, and God is using us to speak of these things. Not by human wisdom do we speak, but in those taught by the Spirit. So we'll get to that later as well. So here's some guidance we received from the Spirit about reading our own Bibles. Theology versus application. Theology lays out principles. Again, it's plain. It's directly stated. Life is where those principles are applied. The Bible gives us insight into both. The common error is to make theology out of human experiences recorded in Scripture. Like Job's wife we talked about several times, and the Corinthian failures are an example. So when, and this is something I've done even in my own soul. You know, when people in the Bible go through certain things or do certain things, we can't necessarily jump to a conclusion about them unless it's directly stated. It might teach us some lessons, But if there's a direct statement of Scripture on one hand, and then something people do in the Bible on the other hand, which one wins out? Right? The directly stated theology has to win out because that is something God laid out. It's a principle laid out before us, directly stated, as opposed to this thing that might be misconstrued if it's not for the theology. Know what I mean? So just think about that. Um... The common error, again, is to make theology out of human experiences recorded in Scripture. In other words, while theology represents the very mind of Jesus Christ, the human experience only touches a finite number of its realities in time. Even in our whole life, even following God our whole life and reading the Word our whole life, experience only touches a finite number of the realities of the mind of Christ. It can't touch them all in this short life. Experiences may be illustrations of certain principles 
but they are not clearly stated doctrines like theology. So we may learn some things from experience, but they must match plainly stated theology, not the other way around. We mustn't let the flesh impose its views on us as we read our Bibles. So on Sunday, we also discussed that there's a logical pattern to human reason and the flesh's method of trying to put broad things into a box for the sake of control. You know, the whole reason we're attracted to rationalism is because there's a certain logic to it. A logical pattern. There is a logical pattern to human reason. The problem is it's from limited human perspective, right? So be careful of putting broad things and things that you can't fully comprehend in the scriptures into a box so that you feel better, so that you're in control, you know, so you have the answers. So we saw an example of the fruit of the flesh on Sunday. Why has mankind struggled with prejudice throughout history when God is clearly impartial? Christians even have struggled with this. My gosh, just read about the medieval period and what some of the quote-unquote Christians did to other people. Mankind has struggled with this, and at the same time, Christians read their Bibles and know God is impartial and not biased. So why do we struggle with it? It's a good question. Why don't we just believe what the Bible says? In Romans 2.11, in 1 Timothy 5.21, we saw the Bible says God is impartial and there's no bias with him. The Bible also says we're called to be like our Father in heaven. So if God is impartial and we're called to be like our Father in heaven, why are we struggling with prejudice, even as Christians? Why do we show bias to certain people, even in prejudice? The answer is pretty simple, as came up on Sunday. Fleshly doctrines develop in our soul. The flesh prefers to use human experience as the basis of its doctrines. For example, consider something that you are really afraid of. Chances are you have had some personal exposure, directly or indirectly, with that thing. So now what do you do with it? What do you do with it? pastor gave us the example on Sunday have any of us lived in Camden, New Jersey? And he showed us a pretty uh, tough picture of, of the neighborhood. Would you go in and rescue his Bible for him after midnight? Maybe that's a test if you really love him. I don't know. But it's ironic. When I was in college, I actually took a road trip to Camden, New Jersey. And I stayed overnight on a college campus, which was, you know, fairly safe. But if I didn't have that secure place to stay, that would have been a scary proposition for me. For two reasons, because of what I heard about Camden and because of what I saw when I got there. So will our fears, based on experience, will they dominate our perception of truth? Will we allow fear to dominate our perception of truth? It will if we let it. And, and, you know, it's hard to drop fears, right? We, we all know that. Whatever our thing might be, um, you know, whatever 
animal you've had a bad experience with. Uh, I don't know. There, there are so many fears. We all have different fears in our flesh. But if we let it, it will dominate our truth. It will shift our perspective of truth um, and, and add to it. But we know God's ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts. We can't let experiences from uh, we can't let experiences create our doctrines or our theology. And we must be humble enough to admit when we're wrong, when we're giving in to what we've always believed or been comfortable believing. And this even includes, you know, our, our understanding of the Bible from the past. You know, we can't fall into the trap of um, automatically accepting everything we've been taught. And when we come across something in Scripture, as we read it plainly stated, if, if we're wrong, we have to have the faith to admit we're wrong and humility. We like to stay with what's comfortable. We like to stay with what we know. And that's something we've got to be on guard for as we read our Bibles. Remember, God is still working out a lot of garbage in our souls. Every time you, you, you come over a, hur- a hurdle and you think, oh, you know what? Wow, that was great. God showed me this, and I, I think I'm past that now. Or he got rid of this in my soul. I'm not in bondage to that anymore. We tend to think we've arrived, don't we? We get a little comfortable and be like, I get it now, as though the whole journey's over and, you know, we're all fixed. We're all sanctified 100%. No, there's a bunch of garbage he's constantly digging out of our souls. And if we stay humble, he can continue to do that. And that includes admitting when we're wrong. So we also talked about on Sunday, boxing out the supernatural. Human beings learn prejudice through their experiences. While it makes rational sense to do so, it boxes out God's supernatural promises. And we saw a few examples, Judges 7-7, Mark 10-27, Philippians 4-13. On the board, in Judges 7-7, the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. We know Gideon was up against 135,000 Midianites. 135,000 soldiers of the enemy. And God limited or whittled down his army to 300. What might Gideon's rational flesh have concluded about this situation? And we might say rightly so. What would his flesh have concluded about this situation? The flesh would have said, this is ridiculous. This is impossible. Put all the money on the Midianites, right? Sell your house, put all the money on the Midianites. We'd all do that if we saw the situation in front of us. What truth might Gideon have concluded by his experience, if he went by his experience, if he didn't trust God? Just think of what you might have been thinking if you were in that 300-man army facing the Midianites across the valley, 135,000. What would you have been thinking? Well, maybe we shouldn't be thinking. Maybe we should be operating by faith because the Lord God said something was true. Sometimes we think too much, don't we? 
How about whatever's plainly stated in the scriptures or whatever God plainly states, we believe it by faith and enjoy the ride and be set free instead of overthinking the situation. Gideon resisted the temptation to listen to his flesh. I'm sure, I'm sure it was there. Gideon was speaking directly to the Lord, and he accepted the word of the Lord. By faith, not by sight. So what will we do when we face impossible situations in our life? We're all going to come across them. We all have come across them. What are we going to do? Are we going to try to think our way out of it, reason our way out of it? Or if we know what God's Word says it, are we going to just believe that by faith and watch Him work? That's the test. That's the spiritual life. That's sanctification. Is living by faith. We've been seeing this over and over and over. To be sanctified means to live by faith just like you were saved by faith. To walk by faith. It brings all, God all the glory. So we talked about impossible situations. In Mark 10, 27, looking at them, Jesus said, With people, it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We must accept on faith what God shares with us in the Bible. And we must walk by that faith. For example, we studied out 1 John 3, verse 6. Go again to 1 John 3, 6. And let's revisit this a little bit. Because it takes faith to believe direct, maybe even challenging statements like this. 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. John is making a theological statement here. On the board, we saw a few commentaries about this verse, and I wanted to repeat them again because I think they just bring out some very good explanations and points about this. C.I. Schofield says, John is stressing the fact that a Christian cannot keep on practicing sin because he's born of God. J. Vernon McGee has a different way to put it, which I really like. If you can be happy in sin, my friend, then you're not God's child because God's children have the nature of their father. And John MacArthur says, if no check against habitual sin exists in someone who professes to be a Christian, John's pronouncement is absolutely clear. Salvation never took place. This reminds me of Romans 7, where even though Paul admits to his battle with sin and doing the things he doesn't want to do, and vice versa, years after his salvation, he's struggling with this. But his desire is different now. pastor brought this out months ago. And it uh, really just shows the changed heart of a believer. Paul's desire is different now. He's not, quote-unquote, happy in sin. He's sinning, but he's not happy with sin. He's not content with sin because he's bothered in his soul. Why is he bothered? He now has a good conscience. He now has the Holy Spirit living inside of him. 
That's what a believer has. The unbeliever doesn't have that stuff, so guess what? He can be happy in sin. He can be content with that lifestyle and say, ah, don't worry about it, right? Maybe even saying, God's got my back. But there's a certain arrogant brashness that the unbeliever has. Um, I remember a guy years ago who we told him, you know what, just believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. He goes, yeah, all right, awesome. Let's go live like hell. I, literally, he said this. He says, God forgives my sins. Let's go, let's go do it. So what's his heart situation? Did he really believe in Christ? Or did he hear that and look at it as a way to justify his action? No one can truly judge, but it's a sign. As a believer, the desire of your heart has been changed. How can it not be when you... When you really understand and believe what Christ did for you on the cross. When you really understand he forgives every sin you've ever committed. And just take some time if you need to. Go back to years ago and think about the things you did that you know are against God. You even willfully did, even knowing it was wrong. And God forgave every single one of those sins at the cross. How can a person that really believes that not be affected, not have an appreciation? Will we still sin? Absolutely. Will our desire or our viewpoint of that sin change? Yes, because your heart's been changed. So with the nature of God now in you, there's a tendency to check yourself and agree with God about sin, even though we still fall into it at times. So John continues to elaborate after verse 6, plainly stating what the fruit looks like plainly stating the one who doesn't practice righteousness and doesn't love his brother is a child of the devil. Wow. Strong statement. But is it plainly stated or isn't it? Or is it an experience? Or is it a parable? It doesn't get much more direct than that. Look at 1 John 3.10. There's another continuation of this statement of theology. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And, you know, I used to think this was a spiritual life issue, and, you know, you're just not, you know, you're not, just not being spiritual if you're not living in righteousness, right? You're living in the flesh. But why does he say children of God and children of the devil? We're talking salvation here, folks. We're talking born again or not born again. Because when you believe in Christ, you become a child of God, don't you? The Bible even says you're adopted as his child. So to be called a child of the devil, it's the direct opposite of that. So does this direct statement of Scripture, does this mean we're on a works program to earn salvation? that we have to be righteous and we have to love our brother to be saved? Or does it mean that these are signs of a true believer? It can't mean that we're on a works program to earn it. We know that because that directly contradicts other theology in Scripture. That's plainly stated. So the theology here is simple. If we choose to accept it on faith, 
So here's the theology that Pastor you know, summarized for us on 1 John 3, 6. Believers abide. No believer's lifestyle is characterized by sin. Anyone who does live that way is not a believer. Will we still sin? Absolutely. Will his lifestyle be one of consumed sin where there's no repentance, for example? It doesn't add up. So why would anyone have a problem with John's theology here? Just a serious question to think about. Why would a person have a problem with this? It's directly stated. Only the flesh will have a problem with it, for it makes perfect sense to the new creature who has a new heart. The new creature walks away edified from plainly stated truths in the Bible. The flesh wants to deny certain things, not believing the truth that is designed to set us free. Even the hard statements of truth, they're designed to set us free if we accept them with the faith of a child. The flesh wants to add a little bit of leaven, just a little bit, in a sense. When plainly stated theology is given to us to be embraced with the faith of a child and be set free. But the flesh wants to add a little bit and stay in control. Another example of theology proper, clearly stated in the Word, is in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Go to Ephesians 2, verse 8. And this complements what we were just saying about 1 John 3.10, how it can't be a works program to earn salvation, because clearly stated theology says we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, right? Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. All of that is plainly stated theological truth. Does the flesh have a problem accepting this one? It certainly does sometimes. Because the tendency of the flesh is to add works for salvation so the flesh can take some credit. But faith accepts Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. So no man can boast. And then by faith, we accept verse 10, that after we're saved, nothing to do with works, but after we're saved, he has some works he wants us to do in grace. So the flesh tries to interrupt even pure, you know, direct theology like this. Some people, if they have an experience regarding good works, or they read about a person's good works in the Bible, they conclude that those good works were done to earn salvation. Why? Because their flesh has a tendency towards that. It wants to add something. It wants to see what it wants to see. So that's the thing we we have to be on guard for as we read our own Bibles. We see good works are given to us by grace in verse 10. 
as a result of being saved by grace through faith and not by works in verse 9. It's a proper order of things again. Right? Not putting the cart before the horse. Why do we believe this? Why should we just believe this at face value? Because it's directly, plainly stated theology. God's not trying to, you know, trick us here. There's not, there's not room for interpretation. There's not room for adding experience into it. So we believe what is plainly stated in the word and cling to that as we encounter experiences. All right, let me say that again. We believe what is plainly stated in the word and cling to that as we encounter experiences. Because sometimes your experiences will throw you off. You can misinterpret your experiences, especially when you're emotional. So we need to be on guard. Cling to the anchor of truth, and then see how the experiences wrap around that truth, not the other way around. So, theology 101. When it comes to theology, you must accept the openness of it at face value. If something is stated clearly in the Bible, then you must accept it on faith, regardless of whether it's something you can personally relate to. You know, when you, when you come from different religious backgrounds, we have a tendency, because we personally relate to something in our past, to put a skew on what is being stated in the Bible. Because we can't drop the garbage the religion we've been holding on to. As we struggle in our experience at times, we must buy the truth and sell it not. We mustn't let our experience get in the way of receiving unadulterated theology. Will we fully understand it? No. And that's okay. But we can still accept it by faith. Just as Paul struggled in Romans 7, so we will struggle at times in our experience. But we're encouraged because all things are possible with God. And He can even use us and even, even get us by our own failures. So Theology 101 again. Theology smashes any notion of human rationalism. We cannot read the personal records of individuals in the Bible and back into our theology. We must seek to understand that which already exists as theology. That is the mind of Christ. So, Pastor put some finishing touches on 1 John 3, 6 in terms of conclusions. In theology, for example, man has every right to say that a person who is saved will bear good fruit. The Bible's pretty plainly stated about that. In practice, man never has the right to judge someone else's salvation status, positively or negatively. So as we walk forward in faith and we continue to read our Bibles in the right way, let's remember the authorities God has provided to us to be our tour guides. Somebody on this earth has to drive the bus. If you're in a bus and the bus is moving, you can't literally get out of the driver's seat and say, Jesus, take the wheel. He wants to use you or use people to drive the bus, physically speaking, by faith. Right? Any spiritual gift, he wants to use us 
to operate by faith. So somebody has to drive the bus. Somebody has to lead us in gathering together and functioning in a church setting, for example. Some person's got to do it until the Lord comes back. So God uses people, even imperfect people. He seeks out and assigns those who have hearts for him and then uses them to build up and guide and train the saints. So let's look at another example of plainly stated theology in the Bible. Go to Ephesians 4.11. We're going to close with a handful of verses about the authorities that God has provided. And this is something the Spirit has determined to use as part of teaching us. In addition to our own reading of Scripture, in addition to the Spirit opening our eyes when we're humble and reading the Word, there's a lot of plainly stated theology about the men He's given to provide for us through the Spirit. Look at Ephesians 4.11. And He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. How humbling is that for any teacher of the Word? To have this responsibility and privilege, it's kind of intimidating at times, and, and it's crazy that God would use me to teach you tonight that God would use any pastor to lead a congregation and um, be the one to drive the bus. But God does it, and he says, I'm going to do it, and I want to do it this way. And he empowers us by the Spirit. Thank God. So really what we're talking about as we close is grace gifts. God has provided authorities for our benefit. We need the structure and leading, and discipline that authority provides us while on earth. If there were no authority, think of the chaos, even amongst Christians. And who would have this opinion, who have that opinion? God's assigned certain men to keep order, so to speak. Even in the teaching of the Word and the, and the, and the, the running of the church, whatever, God has designed it this way. And He's giving gifts to certain men to be able to function uh, marvelously by grace. So we actually need the structure and the leading and the discipline that authority provides us while on earth. Our opinion or personal taste doesn't matter. So let's look at these verses as we close. Go to Jeremiah 3, verse 15. Jeremiah three fifteen. Again, God has provided authorities for our benefit. And He's inspired these men. He's motivated, um, inspired, whatever word you want to use. He has instilled in the hearts of certain men to jump out by faith and do this thing. And you've got to believe that. Why? It's plainly stated scripture. It's plainly stated theology. Look at Jeremiah 3.15. God says, then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding.
And this was in context when God was calling faithless Israel back to come back to God, come back to him. And he said, just come back and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. Even in the Old Testament, God did that. Why didn't God just keep speaking from the cloud? Why did God use Moses, a man who had his problems, had his own issues? Why did God use Moses to relay the message? Grace and a show of his grace. But this is God's way. Go to Hebrews 13, 17 again in the New Testament. This is the way God designed it to run. And God gets all the glory. Satan and the fallen angels are very angry. Say it nicely. That sinners like us can be used to do God's will, including teach the word of God. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Do you think a pastor does this for fun? <laughs> I mean, talk to any pastor. It would be a lot more fun to not be a pastor. But it's an obligation and it's a duty that, that he's called to. So obey your leaders and submit to them because they're keeping watch over your souls and they know they have to give an account to God. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. What would be unprofitable? Not obeying and not submitting because that causes grief and not joy. So if you think a man or a pastor that you're called to has a heart for God, you're blessed. And just obey and submit even when you think, you know, eh, I don't always agree. That's okay. Where is your heart at? Where's your humility at? Uh, go to 1 Corinthians 16, 15. 1 Corinthians 16, 15. This is all about perspective, isn't it? Looking at teachers or pastors or, or whomever God's given you as a grace blessing. 1 Corinthians sixteen fifteen. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men, and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Just thank God and be in subjection to those men that are putting their lives aside for your benefit. And this includes deacons. What does it say? Be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Like, be thankful and respectful of the, the labor that they're doing on your behalf. And finally, let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them 
very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Same principle. They're working for you. They're putting their lives aside for you. The least we can do is highly esteem them in love. Which basically all those scriptures say one way or another. So if you read these verses that we just read, and you're not thinking this way in your soul, maybe now is the time to check yourself. And in humility, change your perspective. Accept the theology. It's clearly stated. Accept the assignments of God and be at peace with it in your own soul and with others that God has placed in your life, even as your authorities. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word and all the great truths that you lay out for us very plainly, very honestly and openly. We ask that you give us the faith of a child. Help us to stop complicating things and adding things to our own liking. Help us to humbly submit and to just be grateful and to be set free by your truth. Father, we ask that you help, take, help us take these truths out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.